Amen. Thank you, Pastor Willie. Good morning, church. If I look different, it's because I've been to the gym three times. Three times, Uncle Richie. You hear that? Pastor Willie and I, Pastor Jamie, we go meet early, and then we start on the track, and we just walk around like a couple old guys talking about the world, the news, you know? But, uh, no, it's, uh, it's, it's been nice. But, um, so this morning, uh, we were supposed to have a baby dedication uh, this morning, and for those of you who don't know, Pastor Sam's wife, Pastor Sam's wife Rachel's in the hospital with appendicitis. And so, and Sam was going to be ordained tonight, so keep them in prayer. I'm sure we'll do the, the baby dedication another time, but uh, keep them in prayer because that was obviously unexpected, and I know Sam and the family's with her, and uh, so they're trying to keep her comfortable. But, um, but uh, when we do baby dedications, uh, a big uh, section of the scripture we use is from Deuteronomy 6, and I actually want to open with that because it's going to be relevant to what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. And so... Um, all these things, you know, we just celebrated communion, the Lord's Supper. Uh, last week we had a, a baptism, and, and we have uh, these things that we do that are symbolic, that we do to proclaim, to remember the promises of Jesus, to acknowledge what he's doing, and remember he'll come again. And, um, and so with the baby dedication, it's, it's a similar thing. It's to acknowledge that a child is a gift from the Lord, to recognize that it's a blessing and to, in a sense, present the child back to him, to dedicate the child to the church uh, and back to God. It's a way to express appreciation, a way to express our dependence upon and our trust in him and God's plan for our lives and the lives of our children above our plan to remember that his promises never leave us, right? And so in Deuteronomy 6, it was very familiar. This is about loving the Lord. And it says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping his decrees and commands I give you, so that you may enjoy long life. In other words, I want you to remember the promises that I've made to you. I want you to remember the, the order I created, the laws and the commands. And we have to understand, and again, this is going to be you know, the, the basis for everything I'm talking about. We have to understand the heart of the Lord. We have to understand that his commands, that his decrees, that his guidance is out of his love. That everything he does is because he wants us to flourish. He wants us to experience the best life possible. So what he's saying here is like, look, these are, these are the commands. These are the decrees. These are the things I want you to live out and I want you to remember and I want you to talk about so that you and your children and your children's children may have long life. So that you'll, you can build the best life and the best community possible. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. So God's saying, look, I'm setting you up as a people, as a community, as a people who live life a certain way, and it's for your benefits so you can all flourish. And then this is the Shema. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. In other words, this is something that not only are you going to talk about, not only are you going to live out, not only are you going to tell your children, not only are you going to pray, not only are you going to repeat, this is going to be your heart. This is going to be the way you desire to live. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. And then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Church, that speaks to each one of us. Those of us who've been set free, that means if you're a Christian... That means you've been set free from sin and death. You've been given a new life, a new path... God's already begun to unveil some promises in your life. You've already seen new life. And we say all the time, this is now the beginning. This isn't the end. This is the beginning of a new way to live. And so as you see these things unfold, don't forget the Lord. Don't forget the one who did what you couldn't do. And he didn't do it. You know, we think of all the blessings beginning with our salvation, beginning with our faith. And we look, and that's the reminder. This was, you know, these are flourishing cities you didn't build. Houses with all kinds of things you didn't provide. In other words, God's saying, look what I did in your life and remember me. The title of the message this morning is Live Generously. God's fulfilled so many promises to you. He's rescued you. He's given you new life. If you're a Christian, this message speaks to each of us. And so he's saying, don't forget him. Be reminded, live generously. And so it's interesting because, you know, we were going to do the baby dedication. And there are people, you know, many of us, we've dedicated our children to the Lord. We have no problem acknowledging, recognizing, and giving our children, you know, Lord, we, we dedicate this child to you. We trust you with this child. And yet what I'm going to talk about this morning It's so much harder for many of us to trust God with. Now, we can trust God with our children. We trust God with our lives. What am I going to talk about this morning? I'm going to talk about something that makes us all very uncomfortable, which is probably the reason we should talk about it, right? Because I love you enough to speak the truth to you. So we're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about money. And here's the thing. People will share with you. You can talk with their most intimate struggle, their sexual sin, whatever it is. You know, the darkest places of their life, but you want to talk about people's stuff and their money? Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's off limits. Yet Jesus talked more about money than anything else except the kingdom of God. It was the thing he talked about the second most. Individually, Lawrence Rockefeller said this, individually, people are finding that a simpler lifestyle provides greater satisfaction than the relentless pursuit of materialism. I profoundly feel that the art of living is the art of giving. You're fulfilled the moment of giving when you do something beyond yourself. 
Socrates said, he who is not contented with what he has will not be contented with what he would like to have. In other words, that idea of, well, if I just get, you know, one more thing, if I just get that next thing, that somehow that's going to do it. But it never does. Dostoevsky said of people, they have succeeded in accumulating a greater mass of objects, but the joy in the world has grown less. Even more so now than when he wrote that. They have succeeded in accumulating a mass of objects, more and more stuff, and correspondingly, the joy in the world has grown less. C.S. Lewis said, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Albert Schweitzer said, if you own something you cannot give away, you don't own it. It owns you. And Mother Teresa said, if you only give what you do not need, it isn't really giving. Jesus, Jesus talked a lot about money. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, one out of every six verses deals with money. Of the 29 parables Christ told, 16 of them deal with a person and his money. Jesus said, which is often misquoted, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So what we do with our money, more importantly, how we view our money, how we view all of our resources, including our time, matters to God. There is no part of our lives that Jesus didn't come to invade and to invite us to give it all to him. And whatever it is, and we've said this before, and we're going to look more at it, but whatever it is, whatever that I will give them all except, whatever that except is, that becomes the idol. That becomes the obstacle to what God wants to do in our lives. See, our culture worships materialism. And so people are often judged based on their wealth. Because of the disease of West is materialism, we have confused again and again wants with needs. You know, and you think of how many things you say you need, and then when you stop and really ask yourself, do I really need that? Because Jesus wants our hearts. And for many people like the rich young ruler, that's the area where Jesus has not been invited. And so I entitled the message Generous Living not to avoid being direct, but because it is about a lifestyle. And so it's not about your money. It is about your money, but it's not about your money. It's about your life. It's about your heart. It's about who you trust, whose plans you trust. It has to do with who's in charge. It has to do with lordship and with worship and with whether you view your abilities and your resources as things to be used in service to the God who gave them to you, or in building your own kingdom. If you're a Christian, Colossians 3 verse 23 says, whatever you do, or anything you do, or everything you do, work at it with all your heart. Working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. There's never a time where as a Christian, you don't get to go, well, I'm a Christian, except right now I'm not. I mean, sometimes when you're driving, you'd like to, right? 
All right, I'm not a Christian just for the next 10 seconds. You know, right? But we don't get to do that. In fact, the time when we least want to be Christian is the time when we most ought to be Christian. See, it's not about living for self, but living for the Lord. And one of the hardest things for us to let go of is our money. And so there's really two ways to look at it. First of all, it, it's not going to last, right? You can't take it with you. It's temporary. You know, when we were in Teen Challenge, there was a thing we used to say kind of as a joke, but it was a nice reminder. Because you're in a program, and you don't have anything. I mean, you have just whatever clothes you can fit in one drawer, and then if you've got family, they bring you different clothes. But you don't have anything when you're in the program. You, don't, you can't hold money. You can't buy coffee. You've got nothing. And so if you ever see, this is my public service announcement, if you ever see Teen Challenge women or men, and they're out there, they want coffee. Just buy them a coffee. Believe me, they want coffee. You can't ask. But you get so grateful for those little things. A cup of coffee, anything. A good notebook. You get a good pen in the learning center. You're so grateful. And so, you know, we'd be out in a store and somebody would pull up in a nice car. Now, you don't have a car at all. You can't drive. You're in a program, which you're reminded of over and over again. And someone would pull up. You'd be like, man, look at that car. And someone else would go, it's all going to burn. And it was a way to make us feel better. And I would be like, I know it is, but I wouldn't mind driving that for a little while until it does, right? But it was a nice reminder. You'd say it about whatever. It's all going to burn. It's not eternal. It doesn't last. You can't take it with you. God's not going to ask you at the end of your life what you did with somebody else's resources. He's not going to ask you what you intended to do. He's going to say, with what I gave you, with your talents, with your abilities, with your time, with your resources, whose kingdom did you build? What did you do with the life I gave you? See, one way to live is to accumulate things. It's the way of the world. It's living for self. It's our natural instinct. No matter how cute your kid is, kids, you don't have to teach them to do the bad thing, right? You don't have to teach them to be wrong. You'd, they just inherently picked up. You got two kids, and there's two toys. You think one of them goes, oh, look, there's two of us, and there's two toys. Here, you take one. No, one kid bops the other kid on the head, says mine, and, you know, every now and then I know they're nice, but for the most part, you, don't have, you have to teach him to share. You don't have to teach him to take. Because our default is always going to be, even those little angels, self-serving. That's how we're wired. It's the effect of sin. So you can accumulate and accumulate and accumulate, and it's never going to be enough. And I was mentioning, you know, it's so funny to me when you watch the guys that, that, that build these mega yachts, you know, and they have this mega yacht, and it's being built. And, like, before it's even finished, there'll be a report from some other guy that's going to build an even bigger one. It's like little kids, and it. it's so ridiculous at face value that I'm like, is this like a joke? I mean, really, that's, my boat's bigger than your boat, and, you know, I, got, I spent more money on my boat than your boat. Like, this is what it is? You think it's ever going to satisfy? You think anyone's going to remember who the richest person in the world is at any one time? No. So you can get, you can, you can get, get, get. You can accumulate, you can accumulate. Or you can leverage your resources for impact. For the kingdom, for living for others. Generous living is not just about money. It is about money, but it's about attitude. 
And there's a reason Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he said, you can't serve both God and money. You can't build my kingdom and your kingdom at the same time. In a sense, at their core, the difference between really bad people throughout history and really good people, and I'm simplifying, but fundamentally, really bad people say, how can I use everything around me to get what I want? And it never fulfills it's never enough, no matter how much land is conquest, no matter how many people, it doesn't, it's never going to be enough. And really good people say, how can I make the people around me, the community, how can I make the world a better place by my presence, by my time, by my resources, by what I say, by how I live? Jesus has called us to make an impact in our world. And that's going to take all of us and if you're counting the pennies, then, then that, you know, that's just an indicator. It's going to take all of us sold out doing whatever it takes. See, they asked the wrong question. The question isn't, what's in it for me? The question is, what do I have that can make it, you know, what can, how can I make a difference in the lives of the people around me? Because there are people in this room right now going through stuff, and they need your prayer. And maybe they need your help. I mean, we have, we have a Barnabas fund here. And that fund was dedicated, was created to help people struggling. Not, you know, not just handouts who are very responsible. There's a whole committee. But people who run into a difficult time. And that's possible because of the giving here. And we're a generous church. We have like 44 missionaries we support. And, 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 and we continue to do that. And the way the leadership makes that decision is not, not designated giving, but we take whatever our regular giving is, our regular annually giving, and we take 10% of that and we give that to foreign missions as a way of tithing, as re of recognizing that it's all his. And we want to give back. We want to give back part of what the church gives for the God's work in other countries. I know uh, um, Charlie and Adriana go to Italy, and there's a little church in Italy and, you know, we've given money a couple times, not a big amount of money, but for them, it's, it's radically changing. And they send emails and write letters about how grateful they are. You're doing that, right? We're doing that. The difference that we're making around the world, even in our community. We're working with the Salvation Army now. We have Willie's going as a chaplain in the hospital. We're doing the ride-alongs. We're doing all these things in the community. Pastor Jamie's going in the jails. Why? Because even though with all this crisis, with the opioid, everything else, with the healthcare, all these things, we're getting invited to bring Jesus to all these places we were never invited to. So you can go to the jails and tell them about Jesus. And we're able to do that. We're able to do this ministry. So I want to I wanna look at two scriptures that really bookend this topic. They really highlight two very different responses to dealing with our money. And the first is Mark 10. And I've preached from this before. I've done a, a sermon on this whole scripture. On the rich young ruler. It says, as he was setting out on a journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then Jesus has this real intentional interaction with him. 
And what Jesus is doing is pointing out to him that his real problem is not his reputation in the community. It's not how he lives externally. It's not what people see. His real problem is a heart problem. And so when he says, what should I do? Now again, and we've preached through it, and I don't want to spend too, too much time because we have other scriptures. But it's an interesting question to ask. The, because basically he's saying, like, even though I'm successful, even though I'm wealthy, even though I'm young, even though I'm, I'm at the prized status of society, I'm missing something. I acknowledge I have a spiritual need. And so he runs up to Jesus with eagerness, asking Jesus, and so Jesus responds with, well, you, you know, I mean, you've been told since you were a boy. And then it's interesting because there are 10 commandments and Jesus only responds to him with six. And those are the six that have to do with the way we interact with one another. There's four other commandments that have to do with the way we interact with God. But Jesus doesn't bring that up. But Jesus is very intentional here about saying, look, you're doing everything right. As far as what everybody sees, you're perfect. And then so as, the, as he gets probably more excited, you know, realizing like, see, you know, I've, you know I'm, I've done everything. And Jesus says, but there's one thing. Now, the one thing he lacked wasn't that he wouldn't give his money away. Do you see that? The one thing he lacked is that his heart wasn't fully sold out to God. That's why Jesus didn't even, he didn't bring up the, those four commandments. He just showed him how close he was. He showed him how religious he was. He showed him how right he was, despite having a heart that was hedging his bets. And then he gave him a choice. And I've said before, now at least he was honest. At least the rich young ruler, it says he was honest. Jesus said, sell everything you have and come follow me. I mean, Jesus didn't even try to make that an easy, he didn't even like try to sugarcoat it. He didn't be like, hey, well, let's talk about this. Maybe you should take this boy. He's like, get rid of all of it and follow me. And now I think when he says that to some of us, and again, this is about money, but it's not about money. It's about whatever that thing is. I think he says that to some of us and we lie to ourselves and saying, okay, but then we don't really. And so as critical as we want to be of the rich young ruler, at least he's honest. At least he's honest. And I love Mark's version because it says that Jesus looked at him and had a great love for him. And every time I read that, I just think of how many times in my own life was Jesus asking me with this idea of going deeper, is asking me to, I got something that we got to talk about. There's something you have to give up. And me going, no, I'm not really ready. And Jesus looking at me with that sadness going, you still don't trust me. After everything I've done for you, after everything we've been through, you still don't trust me. See, the reason that Jesus talks about our money so much isn't because he needs our money or because he wants our money. It's because he wants us to trust him. Because he knows where your heart is, as we're going to read, there your treasure is also. And so, it's about worship. It's about our affection. It's about our devotion. And it says, looking at him, verse 21, Jesus felt a love for him and said, one thing you lack, sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. Exchange the stuff that's all going to burn anyway for the stuff that lasts. And the rich young ruler, in verse 22, it says, but at these words he was saddened. 
and he went away grieving, for he owned much property. I want to point out that it's so interesting, and it's so, it's so profoundly sad to me, that scripture, because we know deep down inside when we're making a choice against what God wants, we feel it, don't we? We know deep down inside this is going to be a mistake. I mean, if the rich young ruler looked at all this stuff and said, you know what, Jesus, I know you've invited me to follow you, but I want all this instead. If that's the choice he made, why is he grieving? I mean, it's a good question, isn't it? Why is he sad? He's doing what he wanted to do. He's sad because he knows it hadn't been enough up until that point, and it was never going to be enough. And it doesn't matter if that's your finances or a relationship or your position or your reputation. It doesn't matter what it is. It'll never be enough. That's not how we keep score. The world says, how much do you have? And Jesus says, how much have you given away? Have you given it all yet? Have you given your whole life? Or are you still just living for you? He calls the disciples around after this has happened and says, how hard will it be for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven? And believe me, when he's saying that, if we qualify that, we're all, everybody in this room, by worldly standards, we're rich. We are rich. If you look at statistics, if you make over $50,000 a year, in the worldly standard, you're in the top 1% of earners on the planet. That means you make more than 99% of people on the planet. More than half of the people in the world live on less than like $2 a day. You read about real poverty and the figures are staggering. Staggering. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it's impossible, with not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Which brings us to the other way we can view our resources. And we read this a couple weeks ago. Acts 2 verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This was their community. This wasn't something they just did sometimes. This was their new way of being. This was, what, this was describing everyday life to them. They were committed to this. This was, everything else was secondary. When, when Jesus invited them to follow, they left it all behind and said, absolutely. Paul said, I consider it, I don't even, it was garbage. None of it matters now. I don't care what I've lost. It doesn't compare to living for Jesus today. It says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Let me just pause and say this to you. I've been, I've been blessed to be part of a, a lot of healthy churches and ministries I have. And I've seen God do amazing things. And, and you know, oftentimes when we look back, we can see God's hand. But sometimes not so clearly right, when, right in, the, in the moment. And can I tell you? You know the pastors we met yesterday, a couple days ago? And we just paused and I said, I've never seen anything like this. 
People week after weeks, you know, we get emails or people show up, hey, you know, I, I, I've been looking for a home church for years. I feel so at home her, here. Hey, you know, I have never been in a community group and I joined a community group and I finally found people I connected with. Hey, I've shared my testimony for the first time. Hey, I'm going deeper. Hey, God's doing something amazing in my life. In my life, in your lives, I hear it. And we, we look back and sometimes we can see God again in the past, or, but he's here right now working remarkably in our lives. What he's doing is crazy. From bringing us all together to making an impact in the city. I went to court the other day and a lawyer friend of mine, he, I haven't seen him in forever and he gives me a hug. He's like, keep doing what you're doing. I keep hearing about the impact you guys are making for Jesus. This is an attorney at the court. Praise God. Why? Because, I mean, we got a great team for sure. It's because everybody's apart. Because people are saying, well, what can I do? This morning, somebody came up to me and said, I got to do more. What can I do? I said, stick around, listen to this sermon. <laughs> Everyone was filled with awe. It was a place of amazement where people looked around and said, look what God's doing. Don't miss that. Experience that. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord. Added to their number daily those who were being saved. When they lived as God's people, God did remarkable things. And they, does it sound like they weren't having fun? Does it sound like they weren't enjoying themselves? Now contrast with, and then he worked 100 hours a week and he didn't see his wife and kids. And then he had, you know, $10 million in the bank. And he, so what? Who cares? See, it's about priorities. I was going to tell this message, the sermon on the amount. Pretty clever, huh? Huh? Dave, that's for you. But this is for believers. This is not for non-believers. In fact, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and, and Pastor Gary tell you, used to say this all the time at South Coast, used to say, if you're not a believer, our service is really a gift for you. We're talking about how God's people are to view their lives and their time and their resources. And so if you're not a Christian, again, don't feel an obligation to give. But when God gives us a new heart and a new mind and a new life with that, he gives us new priorities. And like we said, it's not about God needing your money. Ministry costs money, and we're blessed. We have very generous givers here at CFC. But we're all called to give. We have teens who give faithfully every week a small amount. And it's the principle and the habit. And I've said before, I'd rather have 100 people give $100 than one person give $10,000. Because we're all called to do our part. And that's why we call it partnership instead of membership. Because words matter. And membership, you get a little membership card. Maybe they give you a little membership jacket. And you go, I'm a member. I get preferred treatment. No. What happens if you're a partner? You, you're, you're collectively, you're on mission. You join the work. We do it together. We're partners. And that's why we call it that. Because that's indicative of what it should look like. We're all partners. God doesn't need your money. 
He doesn't need your abilities. He doesn't need your time. He doesn't need you. But he wants you. And he wants you because he loves you. And he wants you because Ephesians 3.20 says, Now him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And what that means is, when you set a goal, when you set a dream, when you have a desire, when you compare that to God's, it's incomparable. What he wants to do, I just didn't want to die a drug addict. That was, I, went, I walked through the doors of Teen Challenge. I didn't want to stop doing drugs. I didn't even necessarily want to live. I just didn't want to die. That was my going in there. Lord, I don't think I'm going to you know, be, be helped, but I just don't want to die right now. Can you save my life? And every one of us at some point should have got to the point where we say, I just, I, I can't have my life anymore. You can have my life. And I'm so glad that my conversion, and it doesn't have to be radical like that in the sense of what's happening outside, but it has to be radical like that in the sense of what's going to happen inside. Because what you have to have said at some point was, Lord, take my life. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. Say, you lived a perfect life in my place. And now because of you, because of your spirit, because of your word, because of your gift of faith, you're imparting on me the ability to live the same way, free from my self-prison to live and love other people radically. Why would we want to live any other way? It's Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There's not an asterisk. There's not fine print. And all these things will be provided for you. Mark 8, 34, in calling the crowd with him to his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. If your whole focus on living is what you can get, and it's all about you, you will have lived your whole life without recognizing what it means to be human. That's what Jesus is saying. You'll have lost it. No matter how long you live, no matter how much you accomplish, no matter how much you get, in the end you'll say, what was it all for? But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And Jesus says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? and forfeit his soul. See, Jesus is not concerned with just changing our behavior, but with our hearts. And so to make it very clear, if there's one main scripture that highlights everything we're trying to say, this is it. You, know, you want to know why Jesus talks so much about money? This is why, Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you treasure? The rich young ruler lived the rest of his life with regret, knowing that he was invited to follow the king of kings, to live for the impenetrable. And he looked and he said, I don't know, I choose my stuff. And from that moment on, he was sad and unsatisfied. I imagine he just wandered, regretting that decision. And I think of how many times in my life and in your life, maybe it is your money, maybe it's not your money, but Jesus wants to do something and you walk away sad. And I picture him looking at us the way a parent looks at a child with that love of like, you just don't get it. Don't you think I want what's best for you?
Don't you trust me? Don't you love me? God wants our hearts. He wants all of us. And for so many, our money can begin to control us instead of us controlling our money. And so if materialism were ever to have satisfied anyone, it would have been Solomon, richest man who ever lived. Wealth, women, wine. Since the beginning of time, that's it. If I had enough wealth, if I had enough women, if I had enough wine, somehow that must, there must be the meaning to life somewhere in there. Had more than anybody. And what do you say? Ecclesiastes 5.10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. And so what was his conclusion? Ecclesiastes 12.13. Here was his conclusion in the end. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. We hear words like fear and duty and command. And instead we should hear, understand who God is. Have a full reverence for him being a perfect father, a creator, a sustainer, a gift giver. And in accordance with that, recognizing that that's who he is. Recognize that everything he says, every command, every decree is for your best interest. And so your duty, your responsibility, and the only way you'll thrive is to respond to that and say, of course, Lord, I've been building the wrong kingdom. Because when Jesus asks what's the most important thing, Matthew 22, verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law, you know what he does? He goes back to Deuteronomy 6, what we just read. And he says, it's the same thing you've been saying your whole life. It's the same thing you've memorized and you've repeated and you've wrote down and you've told other people about and you still miss it. You still, you still don't get it. He's saying it's Deuteronomy 6. It's here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the Shema. It's the most important prayer that's prayed constantly. The last prayer prayed before death for the Jewish people. It's something that they had said all the time, but somehow never quite understood. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He's saying, this is what you've known. This is Deuteronomy 6. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, which was Leviticus 19. Jesus is saying, you've, said, you've heard this, you've said it. Then he says something radical. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these commands. In other words, he's saying everything it means to be a Christian, everything that's ever been taught, everything the prophets that have ever been spoken, everything written down has its foundation, has its heart. Everything I'm asking you to do, every way you ought to live is in response to loving me with everything you are, with your intention and your, your affection and your action, your emotion, Loving me with everything. And as a result of that, your concern should be for other people. And he's saying, and instead what you've done, and he's talking to church people, and we would do well to listen. He's saying, instead of what you've done, and you've repeated this, and you've wrote it down, and you've told everybody else about it, but in your, in your heart of hearts, you're not living it out. 
The rich young ruler knew all of this. He had repeated all of this. But when it came down to it, there was something he loved more than God. And for him, it was his money. And for a lot of us, it can be. And Jesus is looking at us with sadness and going, don't you realize that you're exchanging something that's going to burn that you can't keep that has no value for the impenetrable, the imperishable, the things of infinite value. We said loving money interferes with our ability to love God and love others. Jesus said the two greatest commandments we can keep are love God and love people. He doesn't say anything about loving money. And we said God created us to love people and use things, but materialism leads us to love things and use people. And so the priority is giving for God. We said last week we talk about giving God our leftovers. And here's what people say. And, and you understand this psychologically, but people, everybody says, if I had more money, I would give more money. Everybody says that. I've said that. Everybody says that. Statistically speaking, the opposite is true. Which means, not amount-wise, but I mean that statistically speaking, throughout the world, throughout whether it's Christians, non-Christians, when you look at charitable giving, when people make more money, by and large, they give a smaller portion of it. That means everybody says, if I made more, I'd give more to charity. They don't. They don't. The opposite is true, because the more we accumulate, the more we have, often we see the more we want, and the more we try and gather. We think that we have to drive around in new cars, have multiple cell phones, internet, cable TV, expensive vacations, dinner a few nights a week. All of these things are needs. And then if there's anything left... We'll give it to God. See, it's less about a percentage or an amount, and it's more about a principle. And we're going to see that works both ways. Giving's not to be legalistic. What's sad to me is when people argue that tithing isn't a New Testament principle, they're not fighting to give more. They're making an excuse as to why they shouldn't give or didn't, don't have to give 10%. I've never seen anybody say, you know, I've been reading the Bible and I don't think it's about 10%. I want to give 20. Nobody uses it that way. And in Matthew 23, 23, it says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. You're checking the box. You're doing what's required. You're repeating the right verses. You're showing up to the right stuff. You're writing the right checks. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. You're supposed to be the teachers, and you think you're doing it right because you're legally doing it right, but you've missed the whole entire thing. Just saying, you, you don't understand. You blind guide. See, it's not just about what we do, but it's about why we do it. It's the heart behind our actions. And so those who do give to the letter of the law, but don't love others, don't live generously. Giving is not to be self-serving or cause us to be prideful. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. It's not to puff us up. It's not so everybody can see. 
Here's how our giving ought to look. John 12, six days before the Passover. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Talk about people that have every reason to celebrate. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, and Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it out on Jesus' feet and wiped his hair with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And then it says, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and the keeper of the money bag. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. It was worshipful. It was recognizing who Jesus was and holding nothing back. It should be cheerful and decided. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerful, cheerful giver. Should be generous. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Should be consistent. Paul talks about it First 1 Corinthians and Philippians 4. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum for money in keeping with your income, saving it so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and will send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Paul's going, look, let's gather some money so that the church can be the church all over the place so that we can send out missionaries. And then it should be sacrificial. This is, these next two scriptures are among my two favorite scriptures that have to do with giving. And the first one, 2 Corinthians 8. And it says, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. I mean, there's so much here. I, I, I'd love to just preach on just this section of scripture. Paul's going, first of all, Paul's starting with acknowledging God's grace being poured out to the Macedonian churches. That's what he's saying. He's saying, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And he says, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. So Paul's going... Look, they were going through stuff. They weren't a rich church. They weren't a big church. They couldn't even pay their bills. They were a little church. Paul's saying they weren't given out of their abundance. They had so little to give. And not only did they give, but Paul's going, they pleaded with us to say, no, 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 you're not going to rob us of the blessing. We want to be a part of what God's doing. Take our money. Paul's going, they exceeded our expectations. They gave more. They don't even have anything. And they gave trusting. I love that. I mean, what a beautiful picture. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. And he says, since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete eagerness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. And of course, the widow's offering. 
In Mark 12, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Talk about, like, a little bit of pressure, right? Jesus said, what do you got? What are you going to do? Jesus is just looking. Can't lie. He watched the crowd putting their money into the treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty, and she put in everything, all she had to live on. Ask the worship team to come up. See, we could, have pre- we could have preached this sermon and then had the offering after. But I didn't want to do that. Maybe I should have done that. Let's see what happens next week. Right? Yeah. Where's the As the ushers are coming. No. But I want us to understand... And it could be our money, maybe it's something else, because money is really tied to, you know, our identity, our value. Society just whoops the way we think of money. But my heart, God's heart, we have a God who gave his life. And in response, our heart should be grateful. And when someone is grateful, the natural response is to say, I love you, what can I do? How can I help? See, we're not sacrificing anything at all, are we? It's all his. Beginning with every air of breath, every breath of air we breathe, every moment he gives us, and the things we hold back are the very things he's saying. Would you just sacrifice that? You know, as we close and the altars are open, if this spoke to you relative to your money, then receive that if there's something else if you're generous with your giving but there's another area maybe sin in your own life maybe a relationship issue maybe just something maybe some personal thing maybe serving maybe just something that the Lord's asking you I don't I don't pretend to know but the spirit of God knows and people say week after week it's like you know it's like you're knew exactly what I needed to hear and well he did he does and he loves you. And he wants our hearts. Not most of our hearts, but all of our hearts. And I'll let you down, and your spouse will let you down, and your kids will let you down. Amelia's not really letting me down. But, but he wants our heart. Malachi 3.10 says, Bring this whole tithe into the storehouse, and there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. The curses of the Old Testament are no longer under effect, but the blessings are. And Martin Luther said, I have tried to keep things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But only what I have fully given to God, I still possess. And so why don't we stand as we worship and the altars are open. And I pray, Lord, what you, would you do what none of us can do? Would you bring instruction, conviction, correction, comfort? 
Father, would you meet us here in this place? Would you help none of us to leave the same way we, we came in and continue to work in us that you can continue to work through us, God? Help us to give all of you everything we are and everything we have. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.